If you've been following COP26, the UN's climate summit in Glasgow, chances are you've heard speeches like this one from Prince Charles. There is every hope that we can build a more circular, resilient economy, which is better for people as well as for the forests on which we all depend. As well as some like this from the president of Palau. Frankly speaking, there is no dignity to a slow and painful death. You might as well bomb our islands instead of making us suffer only to witness our slow and fateful demise. You could say that disparity is a theme at this year's climate summit. There's the gap between the hope of a royal and the despair of a leader trying to secure a future for his people. There's the disparity between the countries that have historically produced the most greenhouse gases and the places that are suffering the most from climate change. And then there are the disparities in money between who has it and who doesn't, and what's been promised versus what's actually been delivered. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Like all of the leaders at COP have said, climate change is a global problem. But some people, and some places, have more reason to be worried. One of those places is the island nation of Kiribati in the Pacific Ocean. And one of those people is its former leader. My name is Anote Tong. I'm the former president of Kiribati. I was president from 2003 to 2016. I've interviewed President Tong before, once in 2015 while he was at COP21, the climate conference that would give us the Paris Agreement. And I spoke with him again in 2018 at the Sundance Film Festival. He was there for the premiere of Anote's Ark, a movie about his fight to save his country from the ravages of climate change. But this time, I was catching him at home in Tarawa, the capital of Kiribati. Our home islands are, are narrow strips of land and so the elevation is not very high on average. It's about two meters above sea level. So the margin between the average land elevation and the high water mark is very marginal. So if we ever get the combination of king tides together with a bit of a mild storm, we would have problems. And we have had problems. So, President Tong, the last time we spoke was early in 2018, Mm -hmm. so almost four years ago. In terms of climate change, that could feel like an eternity for an island like Kiribati. So what are things like in Kiribati right now? Have you noticed any difference from 2018? Climate change is a very slow onset phenomenon, okay? Very slow. You really have to be watching it over a long period of time. I came to my home where I'm living now almost 40 years ago. In the four years since we met last, the changes that might have taken place are not so discernible. But over 40 years, I've seen quite radical changes, okay? There was a time when I used to play with my kids on a coral head, which when the tide is high, it's safe, okay? As the waves come over, I play with my kids. I can no longer do that now because it gets dangerous because the waves are much bigger and much stronger and you cannot do the same thing. What else we are witnessing, of course, the king tides and the destruction of the seawalls. King tides are the extremely high tides that come a couple times a year. And of course, 
we have to build seawalls. If you ever visit uh, Tarawa, you will see that almost the entire uh, coast, almost entirely uh, seawall, because without doing that, your home would be washed away. So as we're talking today, COP26 is taking place, but several Pacific Island leaders aren't there. They've opted to send delegates instead because of their concerns about COVID naturally. Can you talk about why that's important? What changes when they are not literally in the room? I think what's what's very important is the face-to-face interaction. I know how important that is from my own experience. According to my own assessment, the input of the Pacific Island countries made a significant contribution to the outcome of Paris. Those countries were the backbone of one of the Paris Agreement's most notable results. The agreement to try to limit warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Now, that is, is not happening in, in Glasgow at this time. Yes, we wish we had more representation at the COP26, particularly in the light of how pivotal it is for what happens in the future. During the discussions, the negotiations are really the bargaining session. And it's about bargaining your interests as opposed to the interests of the other parties. And on this occasion, we won't have our side bargaining on our behalf as vigorously as we would have done in the past. Some of the leaders of other countries at COP26 expanded their carbon footprint by flying in on private jets. But others found a way to make their presence known even if they weren't there in person. Like the foreign minister of the South Pacific Island nation of Tuvalu, just southeast of Kiribati. He recorded a video message for the conference while standing knee-deep in the sea. We will not stand idly by as the water rises around us. We're not just talking in Tuvalu. We are mobilizing collective action at home, in our region and on the international stage to secure our future. It's just one of the many inequalities on display at COP26. And that's all the more important given one of the biggest topics of discussion at this conference, money. Back at the Copenhagen climate talks in 2009, rich countries made a pledge. They said that by 2020, they'd be putting $100 billion a year towards something called climate finance. 2020 came and went. Because of the pandemic, COP26 was delayed a year. And then, ahead of this year's conference in Glasgow... Twelve years on, a spending pledge of $100 billion a year by rich nations has missed its target. Those countries were about $20 billion short of meeting their promise. We wanted to speak with someone who could give us a sense of what that shortfall will mean. As it turns out, most of the people who could talk about it were all in one place. So we'll return to Kiribati in a minute. But first, a dispatch from Scotland. I'm at the COP26 venue in Glasgow, and I've been here for the past week. That's Clemence Abes. She's a climate justice officer for Oxfam, based in Peru. I'm right now actually in something called the Action Hub, one of the places where everybody meets at the COP. Clemence went to the last COP, the one in Madrid in 2019. She says this time things are a little different. You feel more tensions and more awareness about what a cup like this means. 
so you can feel the electricity <laughs> in the venue and you can also of course see it outside with all the demonstrations that have taken place into Glasgow and all the civil society presence outside of the venue too. It's kind of strange because you see how we are not at a point as maybe other cops where people were still discussing about if climate change was real. I think that everybody's convinced now that is like the biggest threat that our civilizations are facing. But you are still seeing a really big gap between acknowledging that and acting on that. And the difference in knowledge and action can apply to that funding gap too. The wealthy nations are now expected to meet their annual goal of $100 billion by 2023. But given the state of the climate crisis, a lot of developing nations don't think that's good enough. Here's Tangi Gahuma Bekele, the chair of the African group of negotiators at COP26, weighing in. Since Copenhagen, we have been waiting for more than 10 years for the promise of $100 billion per year. Today, this promise has become obsolete. It is no longer relevant. And yet, developed countries are still unable to mobilize the $100 billion per year. Our view now is that we need to go much farther than the 100 billion a year, which is not a goal of the Paris Agreement, because in the Paris Agreement, it says that the 100 billion is a floor. Clements didn't feel too differently when she heard about the broken promise. The first reaction is this is disappointing. That pledge actually was made in 2009. So we have been waiting for that. It's not a new pledge. It has been going on for the past 12 years. So yeah, it's not acceptable to, to have a shortfall in terms of climate finance. Like Clement said, those countries have known about that pledge for quite some time. Here's Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State in the U.S. during those 2009 talks in Copenhagen. The United States is prepared to work with other countries toward a goal of jointly mobilizing $100 billion a year by 2020 to address the climate change needs of developing countries. We expect this funding will come from a wide variety of sources, public and private, bilateral and multilateral, including alternative sources of finance. And she went on to emphasize where those funds would be directed. Particularly, again, I repeat, for the poorest and most vulnerable among us. This promise became even more important after the climate meeting in Paris in 2015. In the agreement that came out of that conference, each country set a target for lowering its emissions. In order to get uh, below the 1.5 degrees, that is a whole goal of the Paris Agreement, we needed to have funding mechanism and to support developing countries. So it's basically money flows that goes from developed countries to developing countries. Because those developing countries needed that money to make good on their pledges. Take Peru, where Clements is based. In my country, most emissions comes from deforestation in the Amazon. It's, it's 50% of our carbon emissions. And this is really a problem related to agriculture because agriculture is the main driver of deforestation. In Peru, we need to support our farmers and to start building agricultural systems that work with the forests and not against the forest. 
Clement says there are already national policies that can help build those systems. And those would support the farmers and stop deforestation. But we need more funding to do that because this is the main problem. We don't have enough money. And there's a lot of money needed to keep the Earth from warming more than 1.5 degrees. It's far more than $100 billion a year. If you were to ask the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they'd say you need in the trillions each year. But it's not just the amount of money that's an issue. It's also the kind of money. When we talk about climate finance, we often get into the big numbers. But it's also really a question about the quality of finance that developing countries can get. A report published by Oxfam in 2019 has actually shown that 70% of public climate finance was given out as loans instead of grants. So that means that developing countries are being pushed more into debt for receiving climate finance support. And this is a nonsense. We're talking about countries who have enormous needs to adapt to climate change, who are facing floods, who are losing their livelihoods. We're talking about vulnerable communities who are getting more into poverty because of the climate crisis. And so when we talk about funding, when we talk about finance, we're really talking about justice. The conversation about climate finance sometimes as like a conversation about like charity from wealthy nations to developing countries, but it should actually be a conversation about reparation, you know, about compensation to developing countries. When I spoke with President Tong, he also had some things to say about what compensation should look like. So I want to talk about something that Seems like terminology on its head, but actually is deeper than that. So the $100 billion pledge is meant to help cover the costs of what's called mitigation and adaptation. What do those terms actually mean? What would they look like in practice for people in Kiribati? Adaptation for us is going to be a huge undertaking because in order for any real adaptation to take place, We would have to build up our islands or build floating islands in order to retain our homelands. And to do that is going to require billions of dollars. I have actually tried to put together a project which instead of the Pacific sinking, it would be the Pacific rising in the distant hope that we could still retain our homelands. Maybe build it up with the rising seas, but it's going to be a huge expense and it's going to be in the billions of dollars. And so the question will be, Is that going to truly compensate the loss that we would have sustained? And the answer is definitely no. President Tong says that besides the developing and developed countries, there's another divide at play, one that separates people who profit from fossil fuels from the rest of the planet. There are these internal divisions within our global community where the few elite continue to perpetuate our dependence on oil because it benefits them regardless of what it means for countries like mine, for my grandchildren who really will be struggling in the future. Will they have a home or will they not? These are the hard questions. And when I get very frustrated, I say, wow, this is entirely the problem 
of the capitalist system that we have put into place, where it ignores the human factor and both puts above all the material, where greed is great. There are those who actually are benefiting from all of this. Sometimes I wonder, do they care or don't they care? Which is part of the collateral in their search, insatiable search for wealth and power. Sometimes I get to the point where it's class and maybe racist in some way, because it's all people like us, you know, brown people in the middle of the Pacific who are of really have no consequence in all of this. So a couple of days after I spoke with President Tong, the environmental group Global Witness released a new report that seemed to underline his point. They analyzed the list of attendees at this year's climate talks, and they found that there were more than 500 lobbyists from fossil fuel companies at COP26. That's about twice as many people from the official indigenous constituency at the summit. I've been attending these things for almost two decades now, and I've never, ever come across any concrete solutions. I've never been able to come back from these conferences with something in my hand, something that I can say, here we are. Our island's going to be built up by so many meters, and you can no longer worry because you'll be secure for the next 50 to 100 years. Now, that's not something that I've been able to come back with, and that's not something that's ever been promised by anybody. And so the real question, will the $100 million do that for us? I don't know. I don't believe so. What does that feel like to come back home without being able to deliver? Here's what we're going to do. Here's the money to do it. It's extremely frustrating, somewhat depressing. And I I can assure you, uh, it's uh, over time, there are moments when I just give up and I say, what am I doing? Am I wasting my time? Let's just wait for it to happen and see what goes. And of course, my wife sometimes reminds me, no, you can't do that. You got to keep going because I've got more than 20 grandchildren. Wow. So that is very personal. Uh, That is real for me. You know, I'm not arguing in a vacuum. Uh, The fact that I'm no longer in office doesn't doesn't change the situation because we still have to deal with our future generation. What is to become? Yes, I get uh, depressed sometimes. I just say, I'm just going to go fishing so I can forget all about it and uh, see what happens. Maybe this is the time when you go back to God and say, please deliver us. Whatever the solutions you you can have. So on the flip side of that, something there is giving you hope. When you first became president of Kiribati in 2003, the world was already on COP9. There was already an awareness that climate change was an issue that required global action. So what do you think of how these conferences have progressed since then? I mean, I've been in a meeting, a press conference where I'm talking and we're being asked by the press, you know, what was the outcome? And I've got other leaders who said, we cannot reduce global rising temperature to 1.5 degrees. Because if we do that, our economies would be drastically affected. And I guess they didn't finish the statement, but what they were really saying is, if the economy is not good, then we lose the next election. Now, to hear that coming from somebody sitting beside you, It's really unbelievable and quite annoying, I must say. (laughs) 
So there was a time when I said, no, let, let me make a statement. I'm hearing what my colleagues are saying, but two degrees for us, we will not survive. So it's not about our economic welfare, our economic performance. It's about the survival of our people. And I no longer believe that they do not understand because the science is very solid. And the evidence on the ground is very real. So what is it that continues to push these people to do what they know in their own minds is the wrong thing, that it would affect countries like mine and people like ours? I do not understand. I've tried and prayed, how can I deliver this message? The answer to that question continues to elude me until today. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai, with Ruby Zaman, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tove, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Al-Milek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. If you want to see the film Anote's Arc, and I highly recommend it, you can watch it on Al Jazeera's website. We'll post a link on our Instagram and Twitter accounts at AJTheTake. We'll be back. <laughs>